This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, dear friends. And welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. And I promise you, if you stick around for the duration and maintain an open mind, now not so open mind that your brains fall out, but an open mind, you may just have your reality redefined, at least slightly shaken. At the very least, uh, what you hear will make you go, hmm. You might even, if you're not careful, be entertained. Here's something else that will redefine your reality, and it promises to be a whole lot of fun. Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, November the 16th at the Regent Theater in Oshawa. Hosted by yours truly, tickets now on sale. I'll be bringing six absolutely amazing speakers to town, and you can witness their mind-blowing presentations all in one day under one roof in one beautiful and intimate setting. The historically and recently refurbished Regent Theater in downtown Oshawa. So if you're into time travel, the Roswell UFO crash, Rendlesham Forest, uh, the, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, or as it's known in the United States, the Bent Waters Air Force Base UFO incident. Uh, if you're into crop circles, the Matrix, Giants. Gosh, who wouldn't be into Giants? Uh, the, anyway, if you're, if you, if that stuff is of even the, of the slightest passing interest, you don't want to miss. Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. Please visit www.followthetruth.tv for more details or to order tickets. And uh, you can email me for more info at followthetruthsummit at gmail.com. And just less than 24 hours away from the debut of Season 3 of the Conspiracy Show television program, debuting across Canada on Vision TV, 10 p.m. Eastern. All right. Uh, you know, sometimes... It's not enough to sit and listen and watch. I understand that. Sometimes we feel the very strong urge to actually do something with what we learn. Uh, take chemtrails, for instance, or, or false flag operations, or, I don't know, the, uh, the financial shenanigans that uh, corrupt Wall Street players and their bosses have been involved with. I talk about these things a lot on this show and on the television program, and you listen and watch intently, and for that I'm truly grateful. But you're probably thinking to yourself, okay... I believe chemtrails are real. I believe that powerful, wealthy, secretive elites are orchestrating these things. But what can I do about it? Or what is being done about it? How are these corrupt, evil individuals responsible for these things ever going to be brought to justice? How? Well, for the next 45 minutes or so, my next guest is going to answer those questions because... He's a human rights advocate, and he's here to discuss his efforts to create an enforceable global human rights court. And such a court would have the statutory authority to prosecute the oligarchs responsible for such human rights violations, as the aforementioned chemtrails, false flags, various financial crimes. Michael Henry Dunn is a scholar, author, musician, 
and a globally recognized commentator on issues of human rights. His advocacy for the movement to support national sovereignty embodied in the Non-Alignment Movement and BRICS Alliance led to his current position as senior editor for the Alliance Journal, a university educational institution which serves as an academic journal, digest, news source, and debate forum to facilitate the realization of a more free, peaceful, and abundant world for all humanity. Michael Dunn, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks very much. Great to be here. You are uh, you know, a true scholar. You, you studied at Juilliard. Uh, and I, I think of you know, people like yourself and, and uh, uh, Daniel Sheehan, uh, who's been on this program. I don't know if you, if you, you know Daniel at all. Uh, and also, well, you know, let's go back, uh, people like Marshall McLuhan. One thing that, you know, these great minds, and I include you in that, all share is you believe that there are, there are this, there is this elite group, oligarchs, unelected oligarchs, who are trying to stage manage events backstage and, and perpetrate great evil upon, upon humankind. And, and I find that encouraging, actually, that there are people like yourself out there, uh, scholars. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, do you have a problem with the word conspiracy? I mean, this is the conspiracy show. A lot of people do. They have a tr- they have trouble with that word. Uh, no, you know, I don't have a, a problem with that. I have a problem with the way it has been used to um, create a label that is automatically discredited. You know, all you need to do, as we know well, to debunk something is to say, oh, that's the conspiracy theorists. And, of course, all that means, you know, conspire in its roots, linguistically means to breathe together, right? Right. And if you turn it around and simply ask someone, no, I'm not into conspiracies, I'm just into identifying groups that act out of common interest. You know, which people can say, oh, well, okay, well, that makes sense. But, you know, there is certainly uh, a lot of dramatic value to the word conspiracy, you know. Uh, There's a lot of entertainment value to the word conspiracy. And as defined in the dictionary, it's accurate for what we're describing. So actually, conspiracy is a totally appropriate word for us to use. But, you know, starting back shortly before Dallas, you know, before JFK was killed, it was likely very intentionally floated as a label to discredit those who were seeing what was truly going on. So, as we know, the handy label conspiracy theorist is... is automatically wacky, you know, is the is the connotation um, that is very uh, effectively conveyed these days. So it's, you know, it's uh, it's both ways. It's it's inaccurate, you know, it's accurate by the dictionary, but it's been, you know, abused to uh, to discredit the movement. Sure, it's, yeah, it's used by uh, the mainstream, if you will, in the pejorative right. and, and as a weapon to stifle debate, and Lord knows we need honest debate right now. Yeah. Um, Let's let's just dive right in here because time is limited. Unfortunately, I need a five-hour show uh, one day. <laughs> but l- let's talk about this global human rights court. People might be sitting back and say, "Well, wait a minute, we have one. It's in the Hague. Don't we already have one of those, Michael?" Uh, yes, we have a number of, of human rights courts. We have an international court of justice, and we have the International Criminal Court, and we have the European Court of Human Rights, and we have the United Nations Human Rights Council, and all these international courts. And they are designed essentially to be um, ineffective in addressing the systemic human rights violations by which the cabal accomplishes its daily operations. 
Um, since time is limited, if you like, Richard, what I can do here is quickly give you the limitations of those courts. I'll try to make it a thirty-second soundbite. How about that sound? Well, we have a little more than thirty seconds. If you need, if you need a couple, <laughs> okay. if you need three minutes, please, please do so because this is important. Okay. Well, let's go with the International Court of Justice, right? Now, this jur- has jurisdiction only for countries to bring claims against other countries, right? So, for you know, suffering humanity, that is not necessarily an answer, and it does not permit individuals to file a claim against the country for human rights violations. Take the International Criminal Court. It has jurisdiction only for war crimes, and it is not a forum for any claims by individual victims of human rights violations in private cases. And you know, if you look at how many cases are actually tried um, in the ICC, they tend to be predominantly darker-skinned people, and uh, they are few and far between in terms of the cases that are actually processed. Meanwhile. Everything that you cover on your show, right? Well, not everything, but many of the things you cover on your show, from chemtrails to false flags, these are actually specific violations of international human rights law that is binding on all UN member nations. And these go unaddressed. There is no forum uh, by which these violations right now can be effectively addressed. And, you know, that is what the Arbitration Court of International Justice which has statutory authority under uh, international law, and I can go into that if you like, that is what uh, this court has been designed to address, are the systemic violations of these international laws and to uh, effectively prosecute them. If I if I might, let me let me throw this out uh, onto the fire as well, and you can disabuse me of this if, if I'm off base, but I think one of the other limitations of these international courts uh, that you've uh, discussed is that they are often used as well uh, in in the uh, ongoing effort to destroy the nation state. Mm. Uh, for example, if we if we look at um, you know what happened in in, in, U- in Yugoslavia uh, and and how that uh, that country was was torn apart. Mm. Uh, and I mean, I don't know if you if, if you if you are in agreement on this, and if not, please tell me. But I, I just think that that's that's an important limitation that these courts. And to my mind, are often used to bludgeon, uh, uh, to 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 to, um, to aid in the in the dismantling of nation states. Uh, we have you know Tony Blair speaking. I believe it was in in Ohio uh, a number of years when he first introduced this humanitarian doctrine, which has been used in places like Libya, uh, which was mm-hmm. anything but a humanitarian effort. Uh, right. You know, we must invade to protect. Uh, people, what are your thoughts on that? That, that? that humanitarian doctrine and a lot of these international courts are used to destroy the nation state. Well, um, I can't really comment on anything, you know, specific actions by the international courts that allowed that. Um, I can agree with you, you know, definitely that a humanitarian front, you know, is a, a humanitarian excuse. A screen uh, is used as the excuse. Um, you know, for example, what's happening in Ukraine. You know, uh, um, in the Western media, yes. of course, it was, you know, played up as these, you know, freedom fighters going against these, you know, Russian-backed uh, people who wanted to prevent all the good Ukrainians from allying with their friends in Europe. Well, it was a NATO destabilization operation. There were snipers, you know, who were killing people on both sides, and there's witnesses to this, who, you know, simply to destabilize the situation. 
and it was in fact a neo-fascist coup uh, that overthrew a democratically elected government which we and the West promptly cheered on and suddenly Vladimir Putin is Adolf Hitler you know so um, that kind of manipulation of our human sympathy through the humanitarian pose you know is something that does does happen quite a lot all right Michael stay put when we come back on the other side let's drill down and discuss what this court this global human rights court uh, would look like uh, let's talk about the statutory authority uh, to prosecute the oligarchs responsible for such human rights violations as chemtrails, false flags, various financial crimes, how it would work, how we bring it about, most importantly, how we get this done. Back with more of my conversation with Michael Henry Dunn here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. We are speaking with Michael Henry Dunn and uh, his efforts uh, to bring about a, um, a human rights court, not... Uh, not the uh, the typical human rights court that uh, seems incapable of of uh, you know bringing real tyrants to justice. And when I say tyrants, now I'm talking about sort of the unseen hand, the uh, the unelected oligarchs, uh, perhaps attendees at a Bilderberg meeting, uh, perhaps they may have a chair at uh, at a council and foreign relations meeting. These are the the people uh, that we believe are ostensibly uh, behind things like. Uh, chemtrails, depopulation uh, uh, programs, false flag operations. Michael, what would this? How would this court uh, be constructed? What would it look like? How would it? How would it operate? Well, um, when you're enumerating these uh, crimes that you were just talking about, Richard, about um, you know, false flags, chemtrails, etc. Um, as I mentioned earlier, these are specific violations of existing international laws. And one of the first major uh, contributions that the Arbitration Court of International Justice is going to make is um, within probably a couple of months, uh, the court will be publishing. Actually, it will be not specifically the court that will be publishing it. It will be published by uh, Ignita Veritas University, which is a licensed university. But we'll be publishing a judge's manual of human rights enforcement. And... That will be listing and documenting all of the international human rights laws which are on the books, which are binding on all UN member nations, and which go unenforced. And we will not only be uh, enumerating these specific violations, but um, exactly what the statutory authority is whereby uh, the court uh, can actually... Uh, through due process, um, prosecute these crimes. So let me just uh, elaborate a little to say, okay, how does the court go about that? The other courts, you know, that we're familiar with, the uh, the ICJ, the ICC, these are treaty-based courts, right? Which means the way they were constructed in the beginning is the countries agreed to voluntarily to submit to the jurisdiction of the court. Now, this allowed for the easy creation right and also the immediate funding of a court that countries all kick in right but it's severely limited by allowing countries to just avoid its jurisdiction you know at their will and convenience as we've seen the united states you know has already done so you know that is one way to create a court but what most people do not know it is not the only way there are specific provisions of international law enacted by the un general assembly that can fully authorize and empower an independent non-governmental court to exercise jurisdiction over matters of international law. Now, there are three 
major hurdles that any court will have to pass according to international law to actually have statutory authority. And I'm saying statutory as opposed to treaty-based, right? And those three things are a court must first have an official licensed status as a non-governmental court from a national ministry of justice of a UN member country. So, you know, here in the United States, that would be, you know, like going to Eric Holder and say, listen, Eric, you know, we're really fed up with the cabal. We've seen all these massive violations of human rights. What we need from you and the Justice Department of the U.S. government, just give us a license to operate as a non-governmental court of international justice so we can go after these guys, right? No problem with that, right? Well, of course, this is not going to happen. Yes, because um, some people but, think Eric, Eric Holder is part of the cabal. <laughs> yeah, some people would think, well, you know, cabinet officers, um, no comment. You know, it's, it's more likely than not. But We'd uh, have better luck. Let's go to Iceland, Michael. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, there seriously. They they've, they've... know how to handle it in Iceland, right? <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. So, um, so uh, the arbitrary, the ACIJ, as I'll refer to it for convenience, has that official license status as an NGO court from a national ministry of a UN member nation. Secondly, it has to have formal UN registered status as an NGO. Third, it has to have, and this is probably the most important thing in terms of functioning as an actual credible court of human rights law, it has to have an infrastructure and a foundational basis which is fully consistent with all details of the relevant body of international law. In other words, you know, it needs to have um, you know the the entire structure that you know the other international courts have with international judges, you know, uh, due process, uh, chambers of investigating judges, etc. And so these are difficult hurdles to meet. This is not the reason I go into all this is that you know in the freedom movement we've become kind of desperate. You know, it's like okay, we'll have to go to common law. We're going to have to go to citizens' grand juries. We're just going to have to go out and, you know, get some friends in the cops and the local sheriffs to do mass arrests, you know, which they very much want us to feel as if we are pushed off to that ineffective fringe, you know, where it is simply an excuse to trigger a crackdown. That is where they would much rather push the freedom movement off to, push the awakening population off to. What they don't want, you know, is a sober authoritative, mainstream enforcement of the rule of law by the human family. That's their worst nightmare, is essentially what's happening here. And so, you know, we are, to some extent, taking this mainstream in that we are working with what a lot of people in the freedom movement perceive as tainted institutions. Oh, you know, don't tell me about the UN, that's a cabal-created institution. Yeah, we know that. We know about, you know... The, the founding and structure and history of that, and it also happens to represent, you know, the entire population of the planet. But you just need and one. It, you just need one member of the General Assembly, one uh, member nation of the General Assembly to get this done. Is that? Is, am I understanding that uh, correctly? I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Um, you know, we do have the aforementioned license, and we do have the NGO status, and we do have the foundational basis required. That's all in international law, and that triggers statutory authority. In other words, it derives from the statute itself. We, all the reg criteria have been met, therefore it has statutory authority. Um, in terms of, oh, you know, all you need is one country. Now, there are, you know, like 170 countries in the non-aligned movement, 
you know, there is the BRICS alliance. There is, you know, the planet is waking up, and there is, you know, widespread and growing awareness of the oligarchy, who they are, what they do, what their agenda is. And so this is not, you know, about some lone um, band of would-be heroes trying to set up some court. This is about the human family coming together under the rule of law to enforce existing human rights law through existing institutions. So, and that is actually kind of revolutionary, you know, in, in the current, I mean, in a good way, not as in, you know, we're waving bloody flags and bloody flags and storming the Bastille, but as in it's, it's seizing the one lever that is actually going to, to make a difference. And, you know, I can't go into a lot of operational details about exactly how would we proceed, which countries, you know, are our allies, what we're doing. You know, obviously there's people listening to your show, you're well aware of it, um, you know, who would try to counter such moves. But essentially, you know, the strategy I'm happy to share with people, that is what I would encourage people to to open their minds to, that it is these mainstream institutions by which we can actually enact effective change by which we can actually push back as a human family and enforce the rule of law are through these existing institutions that they want us to think have been tainted. Oh, it's the UN, now throw that out. You know, oh, it's the Catholic Church, throw that out. Oh, it's, you know, it has to do with the UK. You know, oh, that's the, you know, the Illuminati tainted Windsor clan or whatever. You know, this is, all that does is push us to the ineffective lunatic fringe, which is just where they want us to be. You're absolutely right. I, I mean, I know uh, sort of, and I, I hate the, using the term community when we're talking about conspiracies because it, it's it's not an appropriate term. There is no such thing yeah. as a conspiracy c- community. There are simply people who are aware and who care. Uh, but uh, it doesn't matter what area you delve into, uh, whether it's, uh, and I don't know if you have any feelings one way or the other about the whole UFO issue, but if you go into that, the UFO community, again, for lack of a better term, there is so much divisiveness, so much infighting, that it's hard to get anything done. Uh, and right. so, and I believe you're absolutely spot on that that's what these, uh, oligarchs, they want, and they are, they are, they are seeding this dissent. Uh, right, yeah, they actively, you know, they have well-funded operations that, you know, uh, that, enact that stuff that um, put out the disinformation put out you know create the infighting that right. you know that's a controlled we're opposition we we're so about. busy fighting ourselves that we lose yeah. our and and so another thing that we're doing like through the alliance journal which as an academic journal um, as part of um, the Ignita Veritas University within uh, the university you know to have academically sound footnoted, referenced, annotated articles that cite, you know, mainstream sources of evidence for these cabal crimes, that cite, you know, parliamentary reports, mainstream articles, that just, and it's, there's tons of this out there, that cut through all that fog you're talking about, Richard, that they, that they create in order to keep us confused and at each other's throats. If there's a mainstream organ you know, that is putting out credible information, fact-based, that scholars can go to and use as academic references for further research, that's, that's a big shift. That put, pulls us away from the conspiracy fringe and puts us mainstream where people say, ah, okay, this is for real, these are solid, checkable facts, and, you know, 
now we can do something about it. Well, I mean, you would have no shortage of, of volunteer investigators, and I'm not talking about amateurs here. I'm talking about, you know, professional investigators, researchers, uh, who could, you know, uh, put together some pretty compelling cases, but which leads me to the next area of inquiry, and that is, and again, we're getting into the mechanics here, and I don't know how far we can go with this, but walk me through how, how, how this court would work. Let's say, Someone comes uh, to the court with a, uh, a pretty compelling case of, and I'm not going to name names here, but inside um, the, the 9-11 was essentially an, aided and abetted by someone on the inside. Mm-hmm. And it may have been within the White House or the Pentagon or some other agency. Uh, and, and, and in this report, they name names and they've got documentation and so forth. Where does it go from there? How would it operate? Okay. Um the question that always comes up in people's minds when they're looking at this is, okay, tell me about enforceability. Great, because there have been, um, for example, the court in Malaysia that indicted Bush. Great, an indictment that it sits there and it's useless and nothing happens. Um, if a case like the example that you, you know, <laughs> going to 9-11 as the first case would probably not be um, uh, a course I would expect the court to take, but again, I am not the court. I am not a, a lawyer or a judge. You know, I'm an adjunct professor with uh, the university and the senior editor of the Alliance Journal. So I just want to be very clear that, you know, that I'm not speaking officially for the court. I'm a volunteer spokesman and I'm, you know, the, the editor of the journal. But supposing that due process having been observed, the foundational basis having been observed, you know, we, we are not talking about some, you know, swift kangaroo court judgment like you hear people making against uh, some of these people out there. But that judgment having been rendered, supposing that assets are to be seized, a judgment has been rendered, assets are to be seized, or someone, an arrest warrant is made against a cabal chieftain, shall we say. Um, now, in all probability serving that judgment on assets to be seized in the United States is obviously a very long shot. We're not likely to get cooperation from the U.S. government in its current form. However, there are 170 nations in the non-aligned movement, and all it takes is one, just one, of those nations to be willing to recognize the statutory authority of the court and to seize assets of the offending country or individual within its territory. For example... Embassies have assets, embassies have accounts, embassies have funds. There are any number of other, because, you know, we are talking about, um, obviously, a fairly complex array of possible perpetrators. So I can't get too specific about how uh, an enforcement, you know, would proceed. But that is, you know, the mechanism whereby the human family, the non-aligned movement, starts to act. And once people see that begin to happen, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people, names we both know that I won't go into, you know, on, on the good side here, to say, you know, really, there are powerful people who are sitting on the fence. They know the shift is coming. They know, you know, that the pressure on the oligarchs is increasing. And at some point, somebody's going to do something effective and we're going to see somebody doing a perp walk or we're going to see somebody seeing his assets seized and there's going to be, you know, a just a lightning awareness shooting through, you know, either the U.S. or the world that 
the jig is up, and you're going to see a lot of these fence sitters jumping. And when that moment happens, uh, I cannot predict, nor if I could, would I, here on the air. Um, but that is essentially the mechanism. And, uh, you know, I can't go into a lot of operational detail beyond that, just for security reasons, which, you know, I'm sure you can appreciate. All right. We'll, um, we'll come back and discuss further. I'll tell you what, as we head into the break, though, even if I don't see assets being seized, even if I don't see individuals doing the perp walk, just to see an actual trial, maybe it's an abstention. I don't know if that's, you know, would be within the protocol of such a court. But just to see an actual trial, a real investigation and a trial, I think for a lot of people, that would be enough, at least to start. Yeah, with. and it would be conducted by, you know, international judges, certified international judges. We're not going to ask them to put their lives on the line. And we're not going to be identifying these folks right, you know, this second. But, yeah, this will be... You know, ironclad international law process. All right, we'll come back. More of my conversation with Michael Henry Dunn here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Yes, keeping an eye on the New World Order indeed. In fact, not just enough to keep an eye on them. Uh, we've got to take the next step, which is to put them on the stand, uh, subpoena them, put them on the witness stand, prosecute them, uh, and hopefully put some of these evildoers behind uh, behind bars for a very long time. Is that possible? Is that within the realm of possibility? Well, my guest, Michael Henry Dunn, uh, thinks so. And the, the first step is the creation of this International Human Rights Court that uh, he's been discussing here on the program. Now, I mentioned uh, uh, 9-11, and, and you said, well, that may be just, you know, a little bit too much to chew first time go around for such a court. Could you give me an example of... of um, one of these New World Order crimes that, that you think would be a, a good place to start, someplace you'd like to see them start? Financial crimes. You know, that's um, what's happening with the bank accounts of ordinary people. You know, what, the way access to your money is being blocked, the way um, withdrawals beyond a certain sum are suddenly forbidden, the way the laws that were put in place after 9-11 Know, in the name of anti-money laundering laws uh, to prevent money from going to terrorists, were used, in fact, to begin to limit the ability of ordinary people, ordinary, honest, peace-loving, tax-paying folks, to get used to a level of governmental or, you know, of essentially banking interference in their freedom to use their money. Uh, essentially, you know, the, your money in the bank is actually no longer yours. The bank can deny you access to it. We are now investors, not depositors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I saw a uh, performance in uh, Los Angeles by an activist who does, um, who protests against mass incarceration. And, uh, and he's a lawyer, Harvard trained lawyer, uh, African American. And he said, you know, what happened after 9-11 is that, you know, you white folks out there, basically, after 9-11, it was what he called uh, the niggeration of America. He said, now all you white folks know what it's like to be pulled over and stopped for no, no reason, to have driver's license checkpoints on, uh, checkpoints on peaceful highways, and to have psychological pressure put on you such that now, oh, well, this is the new normal, Right. Um, so these are, you know, some of the effects of these financial violations. And these are specific violations of existing international law. 
you know, and they imagine that they are um, impervious to prosecution, that they can hide behind a corporate veil, that they can hide behind a governmental veil, and in fact, that is not true. I'm not going to, you know, again, this is uh, when the judge's manual for human rights enforcement comes out shortly, um, you know, your audience will be able to uh, see the details, and it's, you know, it's a very definitive work, and uh, we're, we're eager to bring it to you. Do you have any, any uh, uh, I don't know if you can answer this question, Michael, but I'm, I'll throw it out there anyway. Do you have any candidates for 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 judges to sit on this uh, list in, in mind? I mean, can you see anyone out there on the landscape? Uh, there's no way I would mention a name. I would never do that. Okay, <laughs> I would never do that. No, I mean you, you, these are um, brave people who would be putting their lives on the line, and there are you know ag- actual existing guidelines and protocols whereby um, these cases could be tried with their um, identity being protected. Oh, is that right? Judicial immunity. Ah. Yes, these are, you know, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, I'm, I want to again give the caveat here, I am not an international judge or lawyer, I'm a journalist and a human rights advocate. I understand, so, and, and my knowledge I, you know, of the... I'm just trying to tread a little carefully about this, but no, unfortunately, of course, I, I, I would not give you any names. And my knowledge of... of you know, jurisprudence is is uh, a mile wide, but a millimeter deep. So I'm I'm treading on very <laughs> thin ice here. But uh, having a judge sit on a panel where he would be anonymous, I mean, isn't that contrary to just the foundations of, of yeah? Of law? You know, because law, by definition, has to be public. You know, that's the idea. Um, I'm actually going to to um, pass on getting uh, specific with that answer, if you'll forgive me, Richard, because. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fam- I have looked at uh, the legal basis, you know, whereby that is uh, actually acceptable under international law, um, but I f- frankly do not feel competent as an, you know, international judge would be the best one to answer that question. We do have, um, you know, experts that I can refer to you on that if you prefer a follow-up visit on your show, if you like. Um, but uh, I'm going to pass on that. No, that's fair enough. Fair enough. It's just um, it's an it's an interesting talking point, and it one that that we should definitely pursue at some point. And and I would love to have right. uh, uh, to, to do another program on this. Let me um, let me let me ask how people. Uh, I mean, we're going to break here in a second and come back for for one more stretch. But in the meantime, how do people get involved and get behind this, and what can they do? Okay. Well, um, right now. The Arbitration Court of International Justice, the ACIJ, um, as an autonomous subdivision of Ignita Veritas University, you know, does indeed have uh, a donation page. Um, at the moment, it, I, can I give the website, the web address? Please do. Be Please do. Okay. Um, the web address is um, www.isis, as in... Uh, I-S-L-X-M, I-S-L-X-M hyphen security dot O-R-G. Now, you're probably hearing the acronym ISIS. Yeah, I was going to say, it's rather Whoa, unfortunate. Right. <laughs> so that stood for the Institute for Sovereign um, International Security. And luckily, and the, the rampaging changed, ISIS... Yeah, it might as well be called the Adolf Hitler Institute. Now, well, they've changed right. their name, thankfully. They're no longer ISIS, they're now ISIL. So we're yeah, off the hook. Yeah, well, it doesn't make any difference because <laughs> Obama just went on... Obama went on the air calling them, at a press conference calling them ISIS the other day, and now all the Western media is referring to them. Michael Dunn, 
my guest here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with. Okay, now Michael, we can uh, we can proceed uninterrupted uh, till the top of the hour. Let's first order of business get that website out again, and I'm going to immediately post it uh, at richardserrett.com. Okay, great. It's um, isis-security.org. Isis-security.org, and then click on the Justice Court page, which will take you to the ACIJ page. And if you scroll down, you will see a uh, donation button to donate, uh, and it is tax-exempt, to the Public Access to Justice Endowment, or PAGE, Public Access to Justice, that's the whole point. Uh, That is the fund of the tax-exempt Arbitration Court of International Justice, ACIJ Human Rights Court, and there's a donate button right there. And in the meantime, if if they simply go to the home page... Uh, they can learn all about the court as well? Right. They can, yes. Uh, they can learn all about the full scope of, uh, of what the institution of, uh, Ignita Veritas University, um, which, you know, has a number of, uh, of licenses and functions that, uh, will be of interest. All right. I am, uh, posting that right as we speak. Now, what people need to do, uh, if they don't go right to the website, if they just want to go to richardserrett.com, if you're on the site right now, listening at home and following at home, uh, just go to on the home page and under tonight's show, and you'll see the heading for the, the, the first hour of the program, Crimes of the New World Order, and uh, you'll scroll down and you'll see our guest's name, Uncle Henry Dunn. If you and, just, and Richard, may I just yes. add also, um, the Alliance Journal uh, also will be a, a helpful spot uh, to stop at, and that is thealliancejournal.org. TheAllianceJournal.org. All right, I'll post that as well. But uh, as we speak now, if they click on your name, Michael Henry Dunn, that will take you to the ISIS website. Great. Well, yeah. Ignita Veritas University. (laughs) Okay, we're trying to drop the ISIS brand. Okay. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right, I understand. So, um, again, not a lot of time here, but give me the Reader's Digest version of how you, uh, you know, having studied at Juilliard, you're a musician, uh, I've, I've, I've seen your, um, some remarkable interviews talking about the, you know, the whole, uh, authorship of Shakespeare, which is a, f- mm-hmm. I'd love to have you back on and, and talk about that for an hour if you're up for it sometime because that's yeah. a fascinating area. How do you go from that world into this world? Well, there's, um, some really interesting, uh, parallels because essentially it's a quote unquote conspiracy theory, right? And um, as a trained classical actor, and I was a, you know, I worked professionally in Shakespeare um, repertory companies. I, you know, I blew the whole thing off. I thought it was this, you know, stupid, wacky theory that these snobs who couldn't accept that, you know, a kid from a provincial town could come in and, and be a genius playwright. Um, but when you look at the facts, you know, you have a unique problem with the Shakespeare authorship. So in studying that. And in uh, eventually becoming uh, more or less a recognized authority on the Shakespeare authorship question, um, you know, I'm cited in several books that are that are out there. Um, what you see is an entrenched special interest defending its turf by discrediting people who are pointing out facts of of you know uh, quote unquote lost history, right? So. Um, that background and training eventually became a trustee of uh, the Shakespeare Fellowship, which is a not-for-profit organization of scholars uh, studying the question. Um, when it rolled around to 2011, 
and I became aware of the uh, the currency reset rumor. Um, by that time, I had studied enough of what was going on with the false flag situation to realize that much as I did not want to believe it, uh, you know, the, the story we were given on 9-11 was a story. And um, once I began to research uh, the financial reset, uh, I started to write for blogs that um, later put me in touch with Neil Keenan. And... Um, Neil, you know, was impressed with my work and asked me to write uh, a preface to his lawsuit, uh, the trillion-dollar lawsuit, which uh, David Wilcock covered in Financial Tyranny. And so that's how I started to work with Neil, and then I went to Jakarta, Indonesia, and, you know, on the ground with Neil there um, in early 2013 for several months. And that's when, you know, I was writing um, a lot of journalism from... Uh, from that location about what was going down with uh, with Neil's... Um, efforts to, you know, put the control of the global collateral accounts uh, in the hands of the right people. So, so that background, uh, essentially, I had I had had a pretty thorough training in um, in the information war uh, because the same tactics are used. Um, it's it's a very um, similar situation. Well, the, in, so in other that, words, that, yeah, you're in a very unique position because. Uh, you were on the other side as a debunker, the, although the issue now was the authorship of Shakespeare, and those people that would come to you and say, no, Shakespeare couldn't have written these, he was, his, his children were illiterate, he wasn't well-traveled, he had no knowledge of the law, he couldn't speak Latin, he couldn't, there's no contemporary documents and so forth, you would just sort of laugh that off or, or use some sort of a straw, straw man argument and employ right, yeah, all the exactly. same tactics. Oh, that's interesting. I was one of those people. And then until I read a book called uh, The Mysterious William Shakespeare by Charlton Ogburn, uh, the best book out there right now, newly published uh, by Gotham, a uh, mainstream publisher, is Shakespeare by Another Name. Again, that is Shakespeare by Another Name by uh, Mark Anderson, The Life of Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, who was actually um, the writer behind the Shakespeare canon. I've heard you sort of outline all the uh, the evidence, not all of it, uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of the evidence, which is overwhelming in and of itself. But I mean, you're right; the parallels there are amazing. Because let's let's, for example, talk about uh, uh, you know 9/11, and it's you know it's the old story about how these conspiracies are really they're 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 not conspiracies; they're out there in plain sight. Yet there is some sort of psychological blinder. Uh, mm -hmm. That we all yeah. that we all have uh, we put on uh, whether it's a self-preservation mechanism, which I think is a large part of it. Uh, I mean, I guess because we all have a, vest a vested interest. When you were a, a Shakespearean actor, you had a vested interest. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. We all live this lifestyle, as some might call it, a profligate lifestyle here in the West, and so we, you know, deny that conspiracies are perpetrated by people with turbans, not us. So. I guess that's what it is, isn't it? It's a self-preservation mechanism. That's what prevents us from seeing the truth. Yeah, very much. Where do we go from here, Michael? What's the next step to get this? Uh, I mean, I, I guess you're in the initial stages of, of just bringing public awareness uh, about this, this court. Uh, but walk me through what, what, the, what the next steps and w when might we actually see this come into to fruition? Well, within probably a couple of months, you will see um, the judges... Manual of Human Rights Enforcement uh, be coming out from Magnitia Veritas University. And that will be distributed to human rights activists, human rights lawyers uh, worldwide. Um, and at, at that point, you know, we, essentially there's a, a, 
one very important piece that we are putting in place very carefully, which is the charter of the court, which is the definitive statement of its you know foundational basis and authority, and you know that cannot be something that is less than fully ironclad and definitive. Uh, you know the this brings up one thing I'd, I'd love to just uh, emphasize here, Richard, which is that you know in the freedom movement we all get excited about one personality or another who's out there as the hero of the moment, right? And, you know, these are brave people. I'm not to knock them, you know, but, you know, whether it's, whether it's David Wilcock or it's Neil Keenan or it's, you know, some of these inside whistleblowers who are putting their lives on the line, that is gutsy, courageous stuff, and I admire them. But, you know, a reliance upon personalities makes us very vulnerable. What we need are institutions that are trustworthy and transparent, that will last centuries, that can you know, have the trust of the human family. And that's what we're putting in place. And, you know, we're not going to rush it. You know, I, we recognize the extreme urgency of what's going on. We're in the middle of, you know, an intense struggle. And, you know, we're, we're in touch with people who want to see this authority established so that it can begin to be used promptly. And... Uh, for your audience out there, you know, we are not funded by nations contributing, you know, to a treaty-based court where it's like, cover our butts and, you know, here's your million to, you know, keep you in business. You know, we rely on, on donations. So we can certainly be greatly assisted in how fast this comes to fruition uh, by folks going to that, uh, that page and helping us um, make it happen, you know, because it, uh, currently, you know, we are working with very committed information warriors uh, who, like a lot of us out there, are doing it, you know, in our spare time from um, what we have to do to bring in income. So uh, that that would be what I, I would encourage people to, to realize that we need to create durable institutions based in international law that have the trust of the people. So that's, that's what I see as, as the next steps. Once the, the manual is out, once the charter is complete, um, and you know, we will invite the governments of the world to critically examine the, the statutory basis, and it's going to be pretty unchallengeable and ironclad. Uh, you know, this is—I think this is, could go a long way to giving people tremendous hope, even in the early stages, knowing that something like this is is on its way. Uh, and that it could re, that could instill people uh, in in people faith in institutions again, uh, and and hopefully reverse the cynicism, which is it's really a, it's a, it's epidemic cynicism yeah. in everything yeah, in everyone, and that's our worst enemy. Exactly, Michael. I really appreciate uh, your time with us, and I'd like to do it again. Uh, I'd like to talk about the international uh, court with you again, and and sort of chart the the progress of that with you, and perhaps we can bring on other experts as well. Uh, and then at some point, when you have a moment, I would love to have you uh, come on and, and talk for an hour about the authorship of, of Shakespeare. I would be delighted, and it's been a real pleasure, Richard. This is uh, a very high-quality show, and it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Appreciate it. Michael, Michael Henry Dunn. All right. Uh, my website, www.richardserrett.com. And again, if you go down to Michael Henry Dunn's uh, uh, name, on the, uh, the home page there under tonight's show, our 11 p.m. guest. Just click on that, and that'll take you right to the, uh, the website where you can learn all about uh, this international court. And uh, 
uh, I think it's I think it's uh, just absolutely wonderful that this is on the on the horizon. Something to give us some 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 hope, and we need that desperately. Uh, also, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S as in Simon, Y R E T T at Richard Serrett, and as always, of course, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. All right, I'm just uh, racing down the hall here, busy scurrying some little people who should be in bed back to their beds. The uh, the twins are with me in, uh, in the radio station again tonight. The mighty Aphrodite had some uh, work to do, so I brought them in with me, and they are supposed to be sleeping in the boardroom down the hall and uh, they just showed up here in the studio a few minutes back but hopefully now they're down and they'll be asleep within minutes <laughs> yeah right uh, welcome uh, thanks for inviting me into your home uh, it's that time of the month and uh, it's time for a visit from our paranormal investigator extraordinaire Rosemary Ellen Guiley now of late Rosemary joins me in the latter half of the show and we get her take on some paranormal stories in the news. We call, we call it our Paranormal News Roundup. But tonight we've got a, a special treat for you because Rosemary is with us for the entire hour. She has a brand new book out. It's called Haunted by the Things You Love, which she's, she's co-authored with John Zappas. Zappas, you may uh, remember, is a, a paranormal researcher of some renown. Uh, and he has... A, a paranormal reality TV show called The Haunted Collector. I believe it's on sci-fi. Uh, he's not with us tonight, but we do have, of course, Rosemary. And uh, she's no stranger to this topic. Uh, we've, we've talked about haunted objects before, but we're delighted to have the whole hour to do so. Again, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, one of the leading experts on the paranormal, with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, mystical topics including nine single-volume encyclopedias, last time I checked anyway. Her work is translated into 15 languages, and she's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, and presenting, and, of course, teaching. Always a pleasure to welcome back Rosemary Ellen Guiley. How are you, Rosemary? Wow, Richard, it's been quite a weekend. John and I were at a major paranormal conference in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, where we actually debuted our new book, Haunted by the Things You Love, that we'll be talking about this evening. We were both presenting at the conference, and uh, the actual debut in hard print and an e-book was on Friday, and it's gotten off to a terrific start, very well received. John has many, many fans from uh, his long career in the paranormal, and also as the star of his own reality show, Haunted Collector, which was all about objects that have spirit attachments and then create havoc with uh, people who acquire them. Uh, yes, congratulations, first of all, on, on the book. And what is this for you, number 51, 52, 53? I've lost count, Rosemary. And I'm pushing 60 now, oh, I think. <laughs> uh, now, is, is John's program uh, still available on Sci-Fi, The Haunted Collector? Uh, it's being shown in reruns. At the end of season three, um, John decided that he wanted to do some other things, pursue some other projects, and he felt that the show had had a very good run. It was uh, one of the top uh, paranormal reality shows 
uh, on air and especially on sci-fi. And uh, so they're no longer in production, but um, it's uh, it still cycles around. And, uh, of course, John's still very active, as I am, doing uh, appearances on media and, and uh, at events. He's had a very long career in demonology. Uh, he's related by blood to the late Ed Warren, who was uh, quite famous with his wife, Lorraine Warren, who's uh, still out and about um, doing uh, audiences and events, you know, demonic hauntings. And that's really where John got his start with uh, haunted objects, is that uh, some of the cases he worked on very early in his career involved objects that had spirit attachments and were the source of trouble. And then, of course, in my own career, I've come across that, too, in my investigations. People go out, they get things secondhand. Uh, they don't realize that what they're bringing into the home has something extra attached to it. And uh, then people like myself and John get called uh, when all kinds of activity break out, uh, breaks out in, in a place, and people start having lots of problems, and, and they can't pinpoint it to anything. So it, it winds up being these objects. John has collected literally hundreds, probably actually thousands, if you count the things that he's got stored away in boxes. He has uh, a building on his property, a little barn that he calls the John Zappas Museum of the Paranormal, where he has hundreds of these objects on display. Have they been exercised? Uh, they have been, yes. When uh, What happens when we get a case is uh, when, when uh, we get it identified as uh, object-related, usually the people don't want anything to do with it. They're more than happy to get rid of it. Sometimes they'll even say, please, please, take this thing away. And so... Um, then John takes uh, the objects and he neutralizes them, which consists of, oh, a number of different things. Uh, one is that uh, a spirit could be detached from an object and sent away. And uh, another is that it's literally bound to the object through uh, prayers and uh, the use of, of things like uh, uh, sea salt, which has... Um, a lot of the same properties that, you know, uh, blessed salt would have. And um, when they're placed in the museum, then, um, they're inactive. Some of the objects that have very strong spirits attached to them, he will put in a, uh, like a glass display case or an acrylic case, because even uh, handling them or bumping into them could uh, jar some activity loose. But in spite of all of that, when, when you go around and look at all these objects, and I've spent a lot of time in the museum examining things and uh, talking with John about the specifics of individual cases, there's still phenomena that happen. Even once they've been exercised? Even once the spirit's been bound to the object or they've been exercised? Uh, well, sometimes the things that have been bound, they do get loose a bit. And uh, so people will uh, sometimes see things or they'll hear voices or feel kind of creepy presences. I have gotten EVP there. There was uh, uh, one of the days that we were doing research for the book. Uh, we were walking around the museum, and I just had a digital recorder with me uh, for note-taking purposes. And uh, when I went back to transcribe the tape, at the very end of it, there was a masculine-sounding voice that whispered, John. Just like that, oh right at the my. end. Oh, that, that would chill you to the bone. Or probably so, not. You know, You're used to that. <laughs> things are still there. 
Well, what's fascinating uh, to me is that there are so many phenomena associated phenomena associated with one single animate ob- inanimate object. Uh, you know, you, as you say, you bring in. Let's say you buy a, a bonnet chest at a uh, at a flea market. You bring it home, uh, and then a short while later, you've got. Maybe it's a string of bad luck. Maybe you're seeing poltergeist disturbances. Maybe you're having, you know, weird dreams, nightmares. Uh, you're seeing shadow people. Uh, I mean, can one object cause all of these things, or is it usually just one? Usually there's one spirit attached to an object. And uh, actually there's there are a number of explanations for attachments. And one, uh, the most active is spirit. Um, a, a spirit, for example, let's say um, an individual uh, has uh, a spirit attachment, and when that person dies, uh, the spirit stays with one of their possessions. Uh, and it's sort of an emotional bonding sort of thing. Sometimes people will inadvertently call in spirits. They're involved in uh, mediumship or uh, they're experimenting with summoning or spirit communications and they'll call in things and then those things linger in the environment. They don't go away and they will attach to objects that sort of like a snail is, has a house, you know, and, and uh, it's a place to live. Sometimes objects are afflicted with curses. We've got several cases in the book uh, usually involving love relationships gone bad where people have deliberately cursed something and then given it as a gift uh, and it's, it's like a peace offering or a present of some sort and then that that spirit comes in like a Trojan horse to wreak havoc uh, in, in a place. Then there's thought form energy and residual energy from a person, just intense emotions that sort of create an, an animated thought form energy that can boomerang around. So uh, most of these things do happen with second-hand objects that you find in estate sales and uh, antique shops, but even new objects can uh, become afflicted as well. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us and the co-author of a brand new book, right? Uh, just just off the the printing press. And now, is this published by Visionary? Yes, it is by uh, my own press, Visionary Living. We've got it up in Amazon and hard print. It's an ebook format in uh, Kindle, Nook, Kobo, and iTunes. All right, and it's haunted by the things you love, and it's uh, co-authored by John Zaffis, and of course you'll recognize his name from the Sci-Fi Channel's uh, The Haunted Collector. Listen, why don't, Tim, in the other room, why don't we open up the lines, and if people want to call in, if they have purchased something or brought something into their, their home, maybe it's an antique, maybe not, uh, and, and they suspect that that object is haunted or possessed or they've had a string of bad luck and somehow maybe that that object is cursed things have changed since they brought home that grandmother clock they weren't able to quite put their finger on it but now they're connecting the dots we'll find out from rosemary ellen guiley what to do about it but i'd love to hear your stories we'll open up the lines as well and when we come back more on haunted objects including those creepy clown dolls that we all love to hate back with more of the conspiracy show my name is richard serrett Welcome back. Would love to hear your stories if you've purchased an item, brought it into your home, and then all the wheels came off, quite literally, metaphorically and uh, otherwise. Uh, hauntings, uh, bad luck, bad dreams, apparitions, 
poltergeist activity, and you've connected the dots and suspect it may be that object that you purchased, maybe secondhand, maybe at a garage sale, uh, a flea market, an antique, maybe not an antique, uh, could be a relatively new item. You wouldn't suspect that it could be haunted, but it is. Haunted objects. Uh, that's where we're going for the next hour. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us, and she has co-authored a brand new book published by Visionary Living, and it is um, entitled Haunted by the Things You Love, along with John Zaffis. Uh, just a quick note once again, please visit followthetruth.tv. It's uh, a live event I'm hosting November the 16th in Oshawa at the beautiful and historic Regent Theatre. Six amazing speakers coming to town, all under one roof, and you'll be able to witness their mind-blowing presentations all in one day. November 16th, Regent Theatre, followthetruth.tv for more details and ticket information. And once again, want to welcome new affiliates KLBM AM and KBKR AM, uh, both in the Portland, Oregon uh, area. KLBM and KBKR uh, in uh, Portland, Oregon. All right, back to uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Now, er- Rosemary, early in my career, when I was producing talk radio... We we, uh, uh, we 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 received the uh, this email. Um, I guess it would have been a fax back then. Actually, uh, this couple they were uh, in Cambridge, Ontario, and they had come into possession of a uh, a beautiful ca- hand carved uh, bench, which they later named the Devil's Bench, and it had the image of the uh, I think it's the Roman god Bacchus. Is that is that the Greek god or a Roman god, the god of wine? Uh, mm-hmm. But it looked sort of devilish. And as soon as they got this bench into their home, the husband lost his job, the wife got sick, uh, and just a, one string of you know uh, misfortune after another. So they got so desperate, they contacted us and wanted to know if they could, they could, if we could help them uh, have this thing exercised. So we actually brought it into the studio, and this is going back almost 20 years, you know, before I was a believer in the spirit world and the unseen uh, world and so forth. And so I was sort of flaunting. It was in my office overnight, and I, in, in, the, in the morning I was sitting on it and saying, ah, this isn't going to, you know, this, there's no problem with this bench. Luckily nothing happened, but I was playing with fire. We did have it exercised on the air, uh, and then we actually auctioned it off. Uh, that was my first sort of experience with haunted objects. But I want to talk to you about these, uh, because one of the most common Objects that are haunted, and we've talked about this recently. There was an item in the news: haunted dolls. One can understand why a spirit would have an attachment to a to a childhood doll. Uh, but 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 uh, give us some for instances from the book. Uh, people that have contacted you with uh, haunted or possessed dolls. Clown dolls rank at the top of the list, and the dolls in general are probably the leading candidates for afflicted objects. Um, they're substitutes for people. Um, they're made like people. Um, sometimes they're they're animated uh, electronically, and we give them personalities. You know, kids play with them. Adults like to collect them. Um, they have uh, personalities, and so many spirits find this very appealing uh, to, uh, to to take over a doll and then start acting out. Uh, and some of these stories actually get to be Twilight Zone kind of material, you know, something that you think really belongs in a horror film. My name is um, Talking Tina, and I want to kill you. Remember? <laughs> exactly. One of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes where um, uh, the doll gets back at, at a daddy who doesn't like the doll. 
Uh, and we find, um, we haven't found any fatal dolls uh, yet, but we've certainly found dolls that start talking in their owner's heads. People say, I can hear, I can hear this voice that I know belongs to the doll and it's telling me things. The dolls will be found moving around on their own. Now, um, uh, people don't see the dolls scurrying around, but uh, they'll put the doll, for example, on a shelf in a room, and then they'll uh, uh, leave and, and then come back later, and the doll isn't there anymore. It's somewhere else in the room. It's on the floor, or it's in another location. And uh, that can be very chilling and unsettling. People will have nightmares. Uh, they will hear footsteps. Uh, in hallways and in their bedrooms, they'll see shadow figures. And as you were just describing, also a breakdown of life. Uh, people begin to have health problems. Their relationships often suffer, uh, you know, fighting, bickering. Uh, a lot of things that you wouldn't automatically label paranormal, but yet are part of a whole syndrome of things that happen when uh, unpleasant spirit activity takes hold in an environment. Uh, I remember my, my, uh, my mother um, has, or she still has it. It's an, an antique doll. I don't think she had it from childhood. I think she purchased it because it maybe reminded her of a doll she had. And it had the beautiful blue uh, uh, bonnet and like a felt uh, or a, a velvet dress. And it had those, you know, the antique dolls have those eyes that open and close and so forth. And... Uh, the, uh, she had it sitting on her bed, and uh, this is going back uh, late 90s, and I, brought, I bought her a dog, and I brought the dog home for her. The dog made a beeline to her bedroom and started barking at this doll, and um, like every day, we'd go into her room and start barking at this doll. Uh, and, you know, we know that, that pets seem to have this, uh, this sensitivity to, I guess, psychic phenomena or whatever it is, uh, but maybe my mom's, maybe that doll needs to be exercised. Sometimes there are attachments that... Uh, they're not extreme, but yet animals will pick up on them. People might just have an unsettled feeling like, oh, that kind of gives me the creeps and I don't know why. Uh, we get those kinds of cases a lot, too. And then we have these more extreme cases where there are outbreaks of a very unpleasant activity. And I mentioned clown dolls at the top of the list. They're the worst. Many, pe many people are frightened of clowns. Clowns really are kind of scary. And they also are uh, very prominent figures in a lot of horror stories. Um, and so uh, of all the dolls, and John has dozens and dozens of dolls in the museum, he's got more clown dolls than any other kind. Now, just a slight digression here. It, it relates to fear of clowns. Uh, I'm not sure if it was uh, Dr. David Jacobs who told me this, or it might have even been you, uh, that a fear of clowns may actually have at its root some sort of an alien abduction um, uh, scenario. Have you heard that? I have. I have not encountered that in um, any of my own cases, but I have read cases where uh, abductees will, uh, as part of the abduction um, scenario, they'll see like creepy faces show up in the window that look very clown-like. And certainly some of the monstrous forms that uh, come along in the, the whole... Uh, play of phenomena as well uh, with abductions. Uh, they they can look very grotesque and gargoyle-like or or clown-like. How do I mean? Do we understand or the the process of how an object becomes um, either possessed or haunted? Sometimes I sometimes we we don't know exactly because we can't 
trace the whole history of an object, but we can speculate based on what we know about certain kinds of objects. For example, uh, in certain parts of the world when masks are made for ritual purposes, those things are made specifically to house spirits. Spirits are invited to live in the mask. When people wear them, uh, they undergo a form of temporary uh, possession where that spirit is permitted to speak and act through uh, the human being. It's a very controlled sort of possession because when the ritual is over, uh, the spirit doesn't stay in the person, but it uh, goes to its house in the mask. Well, collectors who travel around the world and want the real deal, not just the commercial masks made for tourists, which are, are inert, uh, they go out and, and acquire these things, and they may not realize that they're bringing home uh, the, the abode of uh, a, a spirit, and these spirits are often not happy to be taken out of their native land. Uh, they'll be uh, usually put on display uh, in another environment, and uh, if the conditions are right, and sometimes it depends on the people involved and their sensitivity to the spirit world, then uh, the spirit can act out in a very unhappy manner, just like um, uh, like an unhappy child, even. And uh, people have had nightmares. We've got a story in the book where a woman acquired an African mask that was a genuine uh, ritual mask. And uh, among the, the things that happened to her were nightmares where uh, she was in this foreign setting. She was out in this foreign land, out in a field of grass, and she was with people who were drumming and chanting. And uh, this dream repeated over and over again. We believe that uh, she was tapping into some sort of ritual memories that uh, had come along with the mask and the spirit. Does the material... Uh, from which the the object, piece of furniture or a doll or whatever, does the material it's constructed from um, make any difference? For example, um, porcelain versus wood uh, is 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 one a greater uh, um, conductor of of um, of spirit activity? Well, we find that all kinds of objects can uh, can hold spirits, and we've certainly seen the gamut, every kind of material you can imagine. However. Uh, metal uh, is at the top of the list for its ability to retain uh, psychic energy, followed by wood, followed by natural stone, like crystal, field stone, uh, and things like that. So uh, like this tribal mask I was just talking about, of course it was carved out of wood, and it, it even had um, a hair that was attached to it that was had been care- very carefully braided out of hemp. And uh, sometimes uh, bits of bone are attached to these things, shells and and uh, other objects that all are also very good retainers. But those would be the top three. However, we've um, uh, we've had porcelain statues, uh, clothing even uh, can uh, retain very powerful um, psychic memories and energy if it's been worn with. Uh, by someone who's had a great deal of emotional attachment to it. Uh, So it's almost anything you can think of has the potential to be haunted. Uh, Mirrors are another example. Uh, Mirrors have uh, a reputation for being doorways to the spirit world, and uh, some of them seem to have let in some very unusual uh, 
uh, entities into some of the cases that we've dealt with. Well, let's talk about possessed mirrors and, and give me an example from from the book, Haunted by the Things You Love. One of the most unusual mirror cases that I've ever encountered was this mirror that came in a, um, it was an ornate uh, mirror in a cherry frame uh, that was very nicely carved, had some age on it, probably early, you know, uh, early to mid-20th century. And uh, some, a couple bought it at uh, a sale, and they put it in their dining room. Well, the husband was always kind of creeped out by this mirror, but the wife was not affected. We find this in cases, too, where there's a principal focal point, a one person in the household that gets the brunt of it, even if uh, people, other people experience something. Well, he would see these shadowy forms go into the mirror. Now, usually in a, a, a haunting where a mirror is involved, people will talk about seeing uh, filmy forms and faces in a mirror, and they will see things come out of a mirror. But this is the only case that I have ever heard of where somebody sees things going into a mirror. He never saw them coming out. These dark shadow forms started appearing in his house, and uh, they would react to him seeing them. And as soon as he saw them, they would zip into the dining room, and if he was fast enough, he could catch them disappearing into the mirror. He also started having nightmares. And uh, he had, it seemed like these, these blob, he called them the blobs and the blobby beings. Uh, the blobs were talking to him and uh, they were telling him that his friends and family were out to get him and they couldn't be trusted. Well, his health deteriorated, his relationship with his wife deteriorated, and uh, she didn't see anything wrong. She thought it was all in his head. Uh, she, uh, even when they had marked poltergeist phenomena in the house, she was unwilling to consider paranormal uh, explanations. This took a very, even after the, the situation was resolved and John came and took the mirror out, uh, something had attached to the husband and uh, the, the couple ended up splitting up. Uh, they'd been having kind of a rocky marriage anyway, and this was like the last straw. They they split up, but even after he moved out of the house, he continued to have these disturbing nightmares, along with this feeling, this foreboding that something terrible was going to happen to him. And uh, John heard um, uh, later on that uh, he had been killed in a, a tragic um, auto accident. Uh, so we're left to wonder, you know, were these blobby beings, were they part of that? Uh, were they trying to warn him? Uh, or were they they part of some sort of um, tragic paranormal game where um, he was being given advance warning of his doom? All right, we'll, uh, we'll step away for a few moments, Rosemary. Stay where you are, and uh, we'll reconnoiter on the other side and continue to delve into haunted objects, haunted by the things you love, with co-author Rosemary Ellen Guiley, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't move. Welcome back. We are with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins us every month at this time, and uh, we are spending the whole hour with her. Uh, and happy to do so. Uh, she has a brand-new book out, co-authored by John Zaffis. It's entitled... 
Haunted by the Things You Love, and we're discussing haunted objects. Uh, coincidentally, today, I believe it's today, is uh, Scott McClellan's birthday. Now, Scott McClellan, uh, in, here in the uh, Toronto area, is the man behind um, Carnival Diablo, which is one of the last sort of traveling sideshows in, in Canada. And uh, he has a ventriloquist uh, a dummy called Waldo that um, he actually purchased at auction from a, a, a U.S. government warehouse. It had been um, stowed away and uh, had many, many owners. It was actually char- uh, carved by the same, I don't know, a puppeteer, I guess, uh, that, that uh, carved Charlie McCarthy. And Waldo, uh, supposedly, is connected with about a dozen mysterious deaths over the years. Uh, in one case, uh, the owner's uh, house was uh, leveled by a natural gas explosion, and everyone in the house died, and Waldo was left totally intact. Uh, and the original owner was a, ven- was a ventriloquist uh, in, on vaudeville, in vaudeville, who was found mysteriously beaten, or bludgeoned to death in his dressing room, even though there was no sign of entry and the door was locked from the inside. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Waldo, he later learned... Was he learned this from a from a psychic, who knew nothing of of uh, Waldo's past? The, the psychic simply walked up to the doll and said to Scott, "This dummy was carved from a hangman's tree." And uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, I asked you earlier about the material that something is, uh, you know, whether that has any anything to do with whether something is haunted. Um, if if something is is um, is made from a hangman's tree or carved from maybe the wood left over from uh, a coffin or something like that, can that cause something to be haunted or possessed? It certainly could, and in fact, in all likelihood, it would be that that would be a, a very bad idea. Uh, the wood would be able to retain all of these unhappy. Uh, emotions, anger, fear, uh, violent death. A hanging is a violent, unpleasant way to die. And all of those uh, psychic energies could be absorbed by the wood. Uh, and you know, perhaps dozens and dozens of them, depending upon uh, how many people died there. Uh, so we have a similar case in the book, a deathbed, a wooden deathbed that came out of Africa. And this is a huge slab of wood on very short legs with a fat kind of a saddle headrest at one end and um, it apparently was used for um, for corpses to be laid out on prior prior to burial or uh, some sort of an um, probably not cremation although some people told us it was cremation but uh, probably more likely burial and it was brought over by tourists and collectors to this country um, people started getting sick, um, chronically sick, nightmares. Again, the, the, there's a syndrome of things that happen in almost all of these cases, nightmares, shadow figures, um, bad smells, unusual sounds, and then health issues. And uh, it, it got passed from uh, them to uh, another set of owners who experienced the same thing, and then finally to a young couple who turned it into a coffee table. Oh, my. They thought it was cool to have a deathbed as a coffee table. And uh, the girlfriend got horribly afflicted, 
and she left. It split the couple up, and at that point, then, uh, the man who, who had acquired it uh, decided that, well, maybe it was time to get rid of it because he was starting to experience things, too. And this is, uh, you know, a piece of wood that uh, we have no idea how many bodies it held, but uh, the, you can imagine the range of emotions. We don't know how those people died. Some of them might have had uh, lingering, unhappy um, deaths, or they might have died violently. Uh, people coming to view corpses would be in a state of uh, shock, uh, grief, maybe even anger. All of those emotions uh, go into something like that, and it absorbs it like a sponge. You know, sometimes we look at an object and it might be uh, innocuous, uh, or in fact it may represent, maybe it's a statuette or something, it may represent something that's quite positive. Let's say, for example, an angel or a cherub. And yet, that cherub may actually be haunted, and, and there's a case in, in your book. That was a deliberate curse. And uh, it's a great example of uh, uh, spurned love. Uh, a man and a woman uh, had a relationship. They went out for a while. He was more in love with her than she felt about him. She broke off the relationship, took up with another man, uh, and got married and was very happy. You know, she moved on with her life. The man who was left behind never got over her. Uh, kept thinking about her. Uh, couldn't understand why she left him. Uh, she was the perfect woman for him. He wanted her back. And uh, so he he decided to try magic to get her back. And uh, he uh, she liked angels and cherubs, and she had uh, artwork uh, of them. And so he drew this picture of this little winged cherub. And it's it's really creepy looking because he gave it coal black eyes. It's got solid black eyes, just like you would think a, a picture of a demon would have. And uh, he um, infused it with a magical spell. He taught himself how to do it. He put a, a spell on the back of, of the uh, drawing uh, and uh, hid it in the frame. And then called her up and invited her to lunch and um, <clears throat> said he had a present for her. And she reluctantly went, accepted it. She didn't really like it, didn't want to take a present, but she didn't want to hurt his feelings. And uh, she began to have a lot of problems. She started thinking about uh, her old ex and <coughs> excuse me, wearing his uh, jewelry that he had uh, given her. She started fighting with her husband. And uh, it created a lot of problems. It was a deliberate curse. All right, Rosemary, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, uh, we'll continue to explore haunted objects. I want to talk about uh, musical instruments. Uh, I love old uh, old pianos and old guitars and violins and things like that, and I know there are some cases in the book haunted by the things that you love uh, where instruments have become possessed or haunted. We'll explore that with Rosemary Ellen Guiley on the other side, quite literally. The book is called Haunted by the Things You Love, and one of the co-authors, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, joins us. Uh, John Zaffis is the other author from The uh, Haunted Collector a television series on uh, the science uh, fiction channel or sci-fi as I, as it's known in the US. Uh musical instruments uh, Rosemary can quite uh, easily be um, haunted one can imagine you know that that people become attached in this life and the next as it turns out. We have a case where um a woman who uh was a musician she collected uh, instruments and she got this antique violin 
and uh, it was in a kind of a shadow box uh, display that she put up on the wall. And uh, shortly after it came in, uh, she her house was cold all the time, and she couldn't figure it out. And her cat just seemed to be kind of creeped out uh, a lot, like there was something in the house. She had nightmares. And then she started hearing uh, phantom violin music. And phantom music is not uncommon in a lot of hauntings, a lot of haunted places. But she would wake up in the middle of the night and hear this uh, music. And it, at first she thought maybe uh, she'd left the TV on or uh, something like that. But she would go out uh, to to check, and the music would stop as soon as she got into the room where this violin uh, case was hanging on the wall. Uh, she had uh, dark shadow figures in her room. One night she woke up and there was a shadowy figure in the house, and she thought an intruder had broken in, and she went tearing out. And then it seemed that uh, there was nobody in the house. She kind of went back in and uh, checked around, and, and the house was empty. No one had broken in. So she started to, to get more and more on edge and more terrified. And then um, the music kept going in the, in the middle of the night. And then uh, she the, the breaking point came when um, this thing flew off the wall at her. It's, it's like invisible hands wrenched it off the wall and hurled it trying to hit her, hurled it with great force, but it missed. And... When it crashed to the floor, uh, the odd thing was that the case broke, or excuse me, the violin broke, but the case did not. Uh, here we have a, a display case with glass, and the case itself remained intact, but the violin was broken in two. So um, we didn't know much about the history of the violin. She didn't either. The shop where she had bought it, uh, they just knew that it was an antique, but they didn't know who the original owner was. And so here, we have, again, we have to speculate as to what the cause was. And the most probable explanation is the original owner of the violin was probably very attached to it. It was probably a highly prized instrument. Maybe someone had uh, had a career with it. And... Um, that person's energy had had gone into this instrument. Uh, it may have gotten passed on after the original owner died. And um, maybe that energy then took a kind of a thought form um, kind of personality. Maybe it didn't like being in a display case. Maybe uh, uh, this uh, kind of spirit-like energy uh, didn't like its new environment didn't like her uh, didn't like uh, being uh, relegated to uh, to just being on display there's any number of, of possibilities we can think of but uh, once it was removed from from the house then everything went back to normal it, it makes sense that uh, objects that are owned by uh, musicians artists uh, maybe writers uh, these people in life tend to be very intense uh, Dramatic sometimes, a little quirky, eccentric. Uh, and uh, I would imagine, and you can disabuse me of this, Rosemary, but people who have that kind of life, uh, who, who have that kind of personality in life, they would more likely make some sort of an imprint onto an object. 
They certainly would, and anyone who has ever studied music and played an instrument uh, would uh, would know the intensity that is focused uh, when you are practicing and performing. Uh, my husband Joe is a classically uh, trained pianist, and uh, he had a stage career um, uh, years and years ago, and uh, you know, just hours and hours devoted to practice. You d- you bond with your instrument. And it's, it becomes like an extension of you. So it's very easy to see how these sorts of things could acquire a haunting presence. Well, you know, here's something that's very strange as you're talking to me about this occurred to me. And last night uh, I was hosting Coast to Coast and I had Gary Patterson on, on the program who talks about, writes about, you know, tales from the rock and roll graveyard. And, you know, he specializes in talking about musicians that have, had such tragedy in their life and, 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 and died untimely deaths. And we all know about the, the, uh, you know, the drug abuse and the alcoholism, uh, and the mental illness really within the, within, uh, the rock and roll world. And I'm wondering maybe whether some of that might be attributed to the, the actual instruments that these, these uh, musicians are walking around with. Uh, maybe they, you know, maybe they bought it secondhand and they have no idea. Uh, is that possible that that's why a lot of people in the music industry uh, you know live such tragic lives it's certainly an interesting theory Richard and has a lot of plausibility to it uh, many musicians prize getting the instrument of somebody else especially who is famous and uh, maybe the energies that come along with those uh, those instruments don't translate well to the new owner it's uh, not a good thing to do. Uh, so it could very likely be part of that that mix. Yeah, you think of all the uh, artists, for example, that have died in plane crashes. Uh, a lot of musicians, you know. And now, granted, uh, the odds are, that, you know, they're they're in a high risk business. They're flying more than the average person. Sometimes they fly in bad weather. Their promoter says, "No, you got to be in Louisiana tomorrow night, come hell or high water." Um, you know, thinking about people like Jim Reeves, Jim Croce, uh, Patsy Cline, Buddy Holly. Uh, you know, maybe it wasn't just the fact they were flying a lot. Maybe that guitar. Uh, they got it secondhand somewhere. Well, how do you, how do you know? Let's say you've got your house packed with old instruments, or you've, or you're running a music shop, uh, or or an antique shop. Uh, how do you know which piece is responsible? How do you go about finding that out? The evidence is really, it's like it hides in plain sight. And in almost every case that we take on like this, the the people, the victims will say that they had a funny feeling about something when they acquired it, but they chose to ignore it. They passed it off as their imagination, or maybe they didn't believe in the supernatural. There were so many other reasons why they absolutely had to have this object that they overrode their own gut intuition. Uh, An object that has troubling energy attached to it uh, can be felt. It's palpable. Uh, when people look at it, handle it, uh, they might get a queasy feeling, an uneasy feeling, uh, or put off, and they don't pay attention to it. So that's w- one of the biggest giveaways right there. Uh, and one of the, the things that we advise people at the end of the book where we talk about, you know, how do you recognize these things and what do you do about it, is that when you are out shopping, especially for, for second-hand things, 
pay attention to how your body is responding to uh, to an object when you look at it and handle it. Sometimes people get these like irresistible attractions to things for various reasons, and that seems to be part of it too, where they're kind of lured in without realizing it. But it's still not a happy feeling. It's more of an um, a fatal attraction kind of kind of energy. And they'll almost always say to us, "I knew there was something strange about that thing," or "When I picked it up, it felt really weird to me." Um, and uh, in the case of some people, especially young people who who really like to go and look for weird things so that they can have unusual conversation pieces. Uh, that's what exactly what they're looking for, and they don't realize that they're a- actually out looking for trouble. Uh, I mentioned uh, Scott uh, uh, McClelland earlier, who has this traveling sideshow up here called Carnival Diablo, and he's also a ripperologist, which is, uh, for those not in the know, these are uh, sort of, I-, I hasten to use the word fans, or I- I- I'm I'd rather not use the word fans, but that that are enthusiasts of the whole the Jack the Ripper case. And he's a collector. And um, one of Jack the Ripper's victims, I think she was the third victim uh, of the serial killer, was Elizabeth Stride. She was known as Long Liz. She was a a prostitute. She was particularly um, uh, tall. And when she was found, in her hand were uh, some some coins, some English coins, money. And um, he owns apparently, one of those coins. I don't know how this was verified, uh, but he handed them to me, and he wanted me to look at them. And I tell you, I felt something strange. I don't know if it just it was because I made the association that these were once being these were once held by one of Jack the Ripper's victims or whether there was some sort of an energy there. you got to be careful, well, you know, when, when people start passing this stuff around. What, how can you protect yourself? Uh, the best thing to do if you're going to uh, to deal with the spirit world is to uh, understand what's out there, to have a very good buffer around you. Now, everybody has a different threshold of sensitivity, and sometimes the victims in these cases are unusually sensitive to the spirit world. They, they sort of make ideal hosts that uh, they've got something in their energy field that uh, spirits are able to latch on to and energize themselves from. Then other people have very good buffers around them. Uh, You could even bring uh, a haunted object into their environment, and it would remain rather inert because it hasn't got anything to to literally feed off of. Uh, So uh, just as a common sense, uh, measure to to uh, understand your intuition, to know how it functions. I always recommend to people in all walks of life that a daily practice of of meditation and and prayer uh, is a bit, it's like going to the psychic gym. It builds up that buffer around you. Uh, but paying attention to your gut instincts is really the number one thing that the average person uh, should. Uh, should develop. We, we're all intuitive. We've all got that. And it can be our biggest ally in keeping the unwanted out of our home environments. Uh, very quickly, because we're almost out of time here, but you know, vintage clothing are very popular now, or not even vintage clothing necessarily. People looking for deals on, on uh, clothes will go to uh, a thrift shop where, you know, if you know your, if you know your labels and, you know, you can really find some amazing articles of clothing. Uh, and, and sometimes the vendor doesn't know what he's got or she has, and you can end up buying a designer dress for $12 or something, people have to be on the lookout and be very careful and mindful of that, don't they? 
Here again, the the emotions of the original owner can linger in the clothing. And one of the best examples we have is a West Point dress cadet jacket that dated to about the turn of the 20th century. It was purchased by a young woman who wanted it for a fashion piece, and she loved it. She wore it all the time. Um, she began having nightmares. Uh, they turned out to be uh, scenes of fighting that we felt were, were World War One, And our conclusion was that whoever had um, owned that dress jacket, even though the jacket had not been used in combat, it still uh, had a great deal of emotional significance uh, to probably a young man who had it, uh, that he had probably been killed in World War One because some of her... Her nightmares were uh, being in trenches and people uh, being uh, gassed, and uh, you know they used the chloroform gas sure. there. Sure. Well, just goes to show you, uh, you got to be, you got to be careful. Saw Gross. blood on herself, um, and all of it was held in the jacket. All of those memories. All right, Rosemary, got to run. Wish we had more time. Uh, congratulations on the uh, the new book, Haunted by the Things You Love, by Visionary Press. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.